We're going to look at the story popularly known as Jacob's Ladder. And as you, if you remember, as we've gone through the book of Genesis, particularly here in the last few, uh, really since chapter 12, we've seen God acting specifically in grace towards a particular family in the land of Canaan, and that is the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we've seen how God has fulfilled His promise to Abraham by giving him a son in his old age. We've seen that He's been faithful to Isaac. He revealed Himself to Isaac. And now we see that same thing happen in Jacob's life as God chooses to reveal Himself in a special way to Jacob uh, in the middle of the desert in the land of Canaan as he is fleeing for his life, quite literally, from his brother Esau because of what Jacob has already done to Esau twice uh, in his deceitfulness of his father and his brother. So we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22, as we consider the blessing of God in, um, in Jacob's life. And consider what that means for us today as we uh, look at the themes in this story. So follow along with me as I read from Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. And then I'll pray and we'll get into the sermon in earnest. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10, God's word says, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the, sun, of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in the place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. And there and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took a stone, took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we know that you indeed have the words of truth as we have already sung. Lord, this word that we have just read is your word and it is for us and for our children. And so, Father, I pray that you would guide our hearts, that you would point us to the truth of this word, that we might uh, take away uh, the distractions and the, and the misgivings that we might have about who you are and that we might see you instead for who you truly are. Lord, take the scales from our eyes, take the plugs from our ears that we might see and we might hear you and who you are telling us you are. Father, I pray that you would bless me as your preacher, that you would give me the words to say that I might encourage and build up and that you would take away those words that would distract or lead astray. And that everything would be done for your glory and honor. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You know, we, we Americans, we love to talk about dreams. Now, I, I don't mean what you dream on a regular basis, even though we do tend to like to talk about that. But we uh, love to talk about our dreams for our life. In fact, we have a goal, every American has, that we reach the what? The American dream, right? That we define what it is to be American based on the dream we have for our own lives and for the lives of our children. We dream dreams here in America. We believe that you can be whatever you want to be. And from the time we are children, we are told to pursue our dreams. When what we mean by that is that we can imagine a world that we want for ourselves and we by our own efforts and our own uh, sheer will, we can bring that dream to reality in this world. And there are a lot of great things about that attitude. The, great, the, the America that we know today is built upon that attitude of individualism and seeking your own dreams and not letting your, your family history or your life as it is define who you are. And there's some beautiful truths in the idea that we are individuals obligated to God to use our talents and our gifts to accomplish what we can. But oftentimes we think of our dreams as something that is ultimate, something that we have to have, and if we don't have it, then we have failed as an American and as a human being, and that we also betray the idea that we have an ideal of what we think the world should be. We have an idea of our heaven, quite literally. We believe that if we can just shape the world to be a certain way, then we'll have the world the way we want it and we'll be in heaven. We'll have heaven on earth, as it were. In fact, oftentimes at funerals, you know, pastors will on occasion, and this is just my personal opinion, but I think they wrongly do this. They take the ideals that a, a deceased person might have or might have pursued in this life and they will make them into a heavenly ideal. So you might hear him say, he's, play, he's playing a round of golf on the heavenly course or she's sitting on her favorite fishing hole with her Savior. And what this tells me, though, is that we think somehow we can make heaven and earth meet through our pursuit of our dreams. And honestly, this is not just an American practice. It's a desire that's as old as time. What we find from the very beginning of Genesis is that God 
placed Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 in an earthly temple, a place called Eden. This garden temple was literally a place where heaven and earth met. But because of their sin, man and woman were cast out of this temple and effectively a division was created between heaven and earth. Now, heaven is just as real and just as imminent as it always has been. But we cannot see it because of our sin. Yet, that has not stopped people from trying to access heaven by their own means. As we've seen as we've walked through Genesis, we've seen that the pre-flood peoples, the antediluvian peoples, tried to gain heaven through relationships with demons. The people of Babel tried to gain access by building a temple that would open the door to heaven itself. Every idol that anyone has ever worshipped is a portal of sorts. The ancient Mesopotamians that surrounded Israel, they didn't believe that the little idols that they made out of stone or wood or, or whatever were actually gods themselves, but they believed that they were a portal that the God could use to access this world. Even the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and, D- and Jacob, were guilty of trying to gain access to heaven through their own means. Abraham tried to gain God's promise through Hagar. Isaac tried to manipulate God's blessing in favor of his beloved son Esau. And we just saw last time we met that Jacob used deceit to try to have heaven his own way. Yet even with all of this sin, God has still been working out his purposes. So we pick up in our text today, immediately after Jacob's deceitful ploy to steal his brother's blessing. And remember that Esau has threatened to kill Jacob. And both Rebekah and Isaac don't want Jacob to make the same mistake that Esau made in marrying women from the land of Canaan. And so they send him away to Rebekah's brother Laban. And in our text, Jacob is on his way to Canaan, uh, well, on his way from Canaan to Haran, and he's alone. He's scared of his brother. He doesn't know if his brother's going to jump out of the woods and kill him at some point. Um, and he has no evidence of either the birthright that he's stolen or the blessing that he has stolen. All he has is the clothes on his back. In fact, he doesn't even have clothes enough to make a pillow for his head. So he comes to what the text calls a certain place, and he beds down for the night, and it's here that God chooses to reveal himself to Jacob in the same way that God has already revealed himself to Abraham and to Isaac. And this encounter with God will serve as the tur- one of the turning points in Jacob's life. And it's something that Jacob will refer back to time and again. Now to better understand this, this uh, story, I want to dive deep into one aspect of the story. There's a lot of things that you could focus on in this. But I want to look at specifically what it is that Jacob sees in this vision. Now much has been made of the story of, quote, Jacob's ladder. Many a sermon and a life lesson has been formed around the idea of climbing Jacob's ladder. In fact, I think there's even a song about climbing Jacob's ladder. With the idea being, most of the, or many of the times, the idea being that the ladder is something that we climb to gain heaven. 
But I want to suggest that that's not at all what's going on here. In fact, uh, to understand what is going on here, on here, I want us to look at three aspects or three questions about what exactly this ladder or this pathway is. So I want to look at where this pathway is, what this pathway is, and why this pathway is. So the first question that I want to ask is, where is this pathway? As I noted earlier, the text doesn't really tell us where it is. Now, it says that it is near a city called Luz, or actually the the author tells us this would later be called Luz and Bethel. And it tells us it's in a certain place. But the text, I think, is intentionally vague about where this is. And I think that intentionality is to tell us something about this place. It shows us, it, it should tell us, that God is present everywhere. Remember, Jacob is leaving the promised land and he's on his way to a foreign pagan land. And like most people in his day, I imagine Jacob believed, like every other uh, member of society, that the gods that they worshipped were regional and that they were bounded just like we are by the boundaries of the land that they live in. And so I'm sure Jacob was worried that as he left Canaan and he went into Uh, into Ur that this God of his fathers would not be coming with him. But as God reveals himself to Canaan, uh, to to Jacob in this place, God meets with him in a nondescript place and uh, and he meets with him as he is leaving the land that God has promised. And in the promise that God gives Jacob, He promises that he will be with him wherever he goes. So this simple fact reveals that the God of the universe is present with us everywhere. He is not removed from us as the deist and the Muslims believe, inaccessible and unapproachable. God is imminent and his throne room is over all the earth. Psalm 139.8 that we just read not too long ago says that God is in the very depths of the earth in Sheol and he is in the heights of the heavens. And there is nowhere we can go, whether physical or spiritual, to escape his presence. Second, what is this pathway? Now, most English translations, I think, and I'm, I'm trying not to be uh, too have too much hubris in saying this, but I get this from the commentary that I've read. Most English translations get this word ladder wrong. Uh, I think a better translation is stairway. And even still, the idea is not a stairway that's uh, suspended in air, okay, as if there's a stairway from the earth into the clouds and it's just a stairway up into heaven. But Rather, this is a stairway going up a temple. When Jacob sees in this vision, what Jacob sees in this vision is a heavenly temple, the heavenly temple of God, transposed over the earth uh, with a stairway leading up to the throne room of God. Now, I get that, number one, because that is kind of the way the word really is used, but also 
In the text, you'll notice when Jacob responds to this vision, he calls it what? He says this place is the what? The house of the Lord. And he referred, he says, I'm going to come back to this place and build a house for God. Okay. And the other reason I think this is so is because later prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel will have very strikingly similar visions which depict a throne room on top of a great temple that, has, that they ascend by God's Spirit. That leads me, that in and of itself leads me to my final question. And that is, why is this pathway in this vision? Now here, Jacob serves as kind of a border crosser. Okay, in fact, that's a, a major theme in Jacob's life is he's always crossing borders. That's it happens to him over and over again in this story. He, in effect, passes through the veil that separates the spiritual realm from the earthly realm. And God's promise in this vision reveals Jacob to be the person through whom God's blessing will extend to the whole world. Notice that what God promises him is not only will he have offspring and not only will his offspring spread to every corner of the world, but his offspring and he will be a blessing to all families of the earth. The implication here is that God will somehow use this deceitful, wimpy man to be the bridge between heaven and earth and will somehow restore the relationship between God and man through him. As the story continues, we get real physical glimpses of what that might look like as God literally dwells with the people of Israel, first in a tabernacle in the wilderness and then in a permanent temple in Jerusalem. And yet, even though God dwelled with his people through this, these physical temples, the hearts of the people were far from him. So while the fire and smoke of God's presence had descended on Mount Sinai, the people were busy in the basin below making an idol some, uh, to somehow gain access to heaven by their own means. And even though in 2 Chronicles 20, God's presence filled the temple that Solomon had built, the people would later set up statues to other gods in and around the temple and on every high place in the land. This idolatry would enrage God so much that he would later use the Babylonians to destroy the temple and take the people into exile. And even though the people would eventually return and rebuild the temple, God's presence would never be seen in it again. That is, until around 400 years later, the Son of God would walk into this vacant temple as a 12-year-old boy, and, he, and the greatest teachers of the land would stand in awe of his knowledge. In John 1, 14, John introduces this Son of God as the dwelling place of God. And Jesus would tell his disciples in John 1, 51, that they would see heaven and earth opened up and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What does that sound like? Sounds like what we just read, right? That this is a direct reference to Jacob's vision in Genesis 28. 
So Jacob, as the border crosser between heaven and earth, is a placeholder, a forebearer for the true Son of God who would bridge heaven and earth for us. And the disciples would see this very thing as the Spirit of God descended on Jesus at his baptism. And later, God revealed Jesus's glorified nature on the Mount of Transfiguration. But Jesus didn't just reveal who he was to his disciples. Jesus would tell the religious leaders in John 2, 19, that if they were to destroy this temple, God would raise it up in three days. Now, John notes that what Jesus was referring to was his own body as the temple of God. The religious leaders took this to be a blasphemous statement and they would use this as the main charge against him at his trial before the Sanhedrin. And in the greatest act of defiance and idolatry, the religious leaders would pledge allegiance to a pagan Roman Caesar so that they could tear down the true temple of God using a cruel Roman cross. Yet God would use this horrific act of idolatry to once and for all break down the veil between God and man. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that at the death of Jesus, the veil in the Holy of Holies within the temple was torn from top to bottom in a symbolic gesture of what was really happening. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the relationship between God and man had been restored. And because of his resurrection and the gift of his spirit, we now have direct access to the throne room of heaven. So Paul tells us in Ephesians 2:21 that God is building a temple and he's building a temple with human bricks. And in 1 Corinthians 3:16, Paul says that we are all little temples. Because God's Spirit reigns in us. This means, among other things, that heaven now dwells with earth because of the presence of God's people here. We, right now, as as small a group as we are, we right now are in the presence of God, revealing through our obedience what heaven looks like. And as we go out into the world, we take the temple of God with us. So when we share the gospel, when we love our neighbor as we're ourselves, when we serve poor the poor and the downtrodden, we reveal heaven to a lost world. So friend, no amount of wishful thinking, no amount of dreaming can shape this world into the heaven that you want it to be. Nothing you can do can cure this world of the curse that sin has placed on it. Your only hope of heaven is found in the true dwelling place of God, the man Jesus Christ. Trust that he is the son of God and that his death and resurrection will restore you to God and you will be saved. Brothers and sisters, we are little temples. And as a result of that truth, we should live in such a way that we bring blessings the blessings of heaven to this earth. The surest way that we do that is in our witness in this world. 
I have come to find in my own experiences of sharing the gospel and of going on mission trips that God is most clearly seen in the work of our witness in this world. You might wonder as you read a story like we've just read, why has God never revealed himself to me like he has to Jacob? Now, there might be a number of reasons why that is, but maybe one reason is because you have never been involved in the work of God. I've seen amazing things that I I don't have time to tell when I've put myself on the front lines of God's work in the world. I've had two experiences that maybe I'll have a chance to tell you at some point. Uh, One when I was in Haiti and one when I was in in India where God used a dream to cause a person to be prepared to receive the gospel while we were there. It was those both were amazing experiences. You see, the presence of God is most clearly seen in our lives and people see it most clearly in our lives when we do what we're called to do. God has called us to be his witnesses in this world. May we clearly display the blessings of heaven on earth as we give all that we are to the service of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are indeed the, uh, the God of all the earth. And there is no place that we can go that we can escape your presence. While that might be a daunting and fearful thing for some, it is a blessing to we who are in Christ. And because we know that you are with us wherever we go and that your temple is within us, that we are indeed the temple of God if we have the Holy Spirit within us. And so, Father, I pray that as we leave this place, we will indeed go out as uh, dwelling places for God Most High in this world. And as we act in in obedience to your word and telling others about Christ and in living righteously before a lost world, that through our actions and our words, we would indeed embody heaven on earth. Father, we come together as heaven in this place and we go out from this place taking God's uh, reality into this world. And I pray that you would bless us as we do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.